This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've lived in Fayetteville, Arkansas for over 25 years and been in practice here. And I began podcasting a couple of years ago, gosh, two and a half years ago now, because I wanted to extend the walls of my practice not only to those of you who might already be in therapy or be interested in talking about emotional and psychological issues, but also to those who might have just been diagnosed with something and were seeking information. Or maybe you're having a relationship problem where you're a little lost in what to do. I've done a lot of couples work as well as individual work. And so I, in fact, I love doing couples work. It's very challenging. But then there's this third group I wanted to reach. And those are folks who might listen to a podcast about therapy or what therapy offers, but they might never really think about darkening the door of a therapist. So maybe if they listen to me and realize that, hey, this kind of makes some sense, that they might just consider reaching out. I've been really tired of the remaining prejudice there is against mental illness and mental illness treatment. So I'm doing my part to try to address it and get rid of it. Today we're going to be talking about social anxiety. We're going to be Looking at how it differs from shyness, actually we'll use an article from a very formal sounding group called the Social Anxiety Institute as a reference. You may not know this, but anxiety is the number one mental health problem in the U.S. And I'm not sure if it's standing internationally, but these kinds of stats are often very similar. They vary from country to country, but it's still very, very prevalent. I'll give a definition of what social anxiety actually is and what you have to struggle with to be diagnosed with it. We're going to talk about what it looks like, what can cause it to appear. And of course, for those of you who've listened for a while, we're also going to talk about what you can do about it. Social anxiety is one of those things that can be tackled straight on, or sadly, it can lead to more and more isolation, even what's termed agoraphobia. I was talking about agoraphobia briefly in the last podcast. Actually, agoraphobia is the fear of leaving your home or fear of the marketplace is what it's termed. We've been talking about social anxiety in my closed Facebook group, which I'd love for you to join more info later. And someone there said the host of the podcast, The Overwhelmed Brain, has just taken a course especially designed to treat social anxiety. So if you have it, that may be a cool place to check it out. But I'll give you my own ideas about treating it. And hopefully between the two of us, uh, you'll get what you need. Again, that podcast is called The Overwhelmed Brain. I've never listened to it, but, you know, someone in my group said it was good, so there you go. The listener email today is from someone whose husband has died, and then she became ill herself with cancer. She'd been struggling with anxiety and depression even before her husband's death, and now she certainly doesn't feel like she's getting any better. So you can listen in on my answer to her. Before we get started, though, I do want to thank someone who left me a written review. I just love what he had to say. The title of it is, I'm not one for self-help, so I thought I wouldn't like this show. (laughs) That's honest. And then he continues, but I have to eat some serious crow for Dr. Margaret's 301st review. It's not self-help at all, honestly. I could go for a name change because this show is much more than just self-work. 
This is a real-world therapist sharing from her vast wealth of patient histories based on different aspects of mental health and wellness. I haven't brought it into therapy yet, but I do want to share self-work with my therapist. Please enjoy. This kind of sharing is rare in the realm of the free and actually helpful. So soak it in. I just love that. (laughs) You know, the book I have just written called Perfectly Hidden Depression, which is coming out November the 1st, is meant for self-help. And it was one of the difficult, most difficult things I had to do in front of me because I'm there to help my patients, right? And here I am handing a book to somebody and saying, well, go for it. So I really tried to translate exactly what can happen in therapy into a language of self-help. And that wasn't easy for me to do at all. So I hope it works. Maybe when you read it, you'll let me know if you think so. So let's get started and talk about social anxiety. In 1980, the term social phobia appeared in the diagnostic manual, and there's been a lot of confusion as to the differences between shyness and what's now called social anxiety disorder. It's no longer called social phobia. And there are huge differences. So in an article quoted in the Social Anxiety Institute, they summarize the differences. It's not true, for example, that all people with social anxiety disorder are shy. I have personally worked with many people with personalities that were extroverted, but had social anxiety. Social anxiety held them back and restricted them from doing what they wanted to do in life. And when they overcame that anxiety, they found they enjoyed being the center of attention or even the life of the party. But this article points out that the whole question of whether this was some version of shyness or a more severe version of shyness was because people were afraid that you could over- or under-diagnose social anxiety. But shyness is a personality trait. It is not mental illness. In fact, if you treat shyness as a disorder, you're going to stereotype shy people. But you don't want to just call somebody shy when they have actually the symptoms of social anxiety. So what are the differences? Shyness is being anxious or withdrawing from social interactions, or being nervous about whether or not you're being evaluated, shyness is normal. It's a personality characteristic like being chatty or being impatient. Social anxiety disordered means that you have a significant amount of fear, embarrassment, or even humiliation in social situations where you feel like maybe you even have to perform to a point where the person who has it often avoids these situations entirely or will endure them with a high level of distress. These are people who cannot go to a social occasion without having a couple of drinks or downing a benzodiazepine like Xanax or Valium. Or they say they'll show up to a barbecue, but then they find excuses not to go. They may really want to go and participate. They may love the people giving it or just love barbecue, but they are simply scared that they'll be embarrassed or somehow look foolish. It's irrational fear, and it's not considered normal. You know, it's pointed out sometimes that shy people may even prefer to remain quiet and not to draw attention to themselves. So let's talk about what you have to have happening to be diagnosed with social anxiety. I remember someone I worked with years ago was a young man who'd spend hours after going to a party going over every word of every conversation he'd had to see if there were signs that he'd been offensive or hurtful or if he'd said something he needed to apologize for. He definitely had social anxiety. 
you know, this may be a tangent, but I get a little concerned about things like Uber Eats or ordering groceries online without ever needing to go to the store or at least needing to go into the store. And they're all, all those things are great for people with busy lives, but if you have social anxiety, ugh, you may overuse things like that so you can avoid living just a normal life. I looked up the Mayo Clinic site on social anxiety, and here's what they said. Here are the symptoms. Fear of situations in which you may be judged. Again, that might be you fearing you're going to be judged, but you're really not going to be judged. You just feel that way. You worry about embarrassing or humiliating yourself. You have an intense fear of interacting or talking with strangers. You fear that others will see that you look anxious. You fear the physical symptoms that may cause you embarrassment, such as blushing, sweating, trembling, or having a shaking voice. Some people have rosacea that appears when they get nervous. Their skin gets real blotchy and red. Avoiding doing things or speaking to people out of the fear of embarrassment. Avoiding situations where you might be the center of attention, like having a podcast. (laughs) Having anxiety in anticipation of a feared activity or event. Or enduring a social situation with intense fear or anxiety. Gosh, there are a lot of symptoms. Spending time after a social situation, analyzing your performance. That's what my young male client did. And identifying flaws in your interactions. And then the last one is expecting the worst possible consequences from a negative experience during a social situation. So let's say you call somebody by the wrong name. And then you think, oh, they will never talk to me again. They are probably so mad at me. They were embarrassed that I called them another name. Oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? I did that, actually, with a patient one time. I had written his name down as, let's say, John, when I interviewed him on the phone, and he came in, and I really didn't look at his paperwork too carefully. And three or four sessions along, I'd call him John this and John that. He looked at me and said, Margaret, I need to tell you something. That's what he goes, my name is James or Jonas or something. I can't remember what his name was. I went, oh, my gosh, why didn't you tell me? He goes, well, it was a little embarrassing. I, I can't remember if he had social anxiety. I was the one who should have had the social anxiety. Now, I do have what's called the performance type of social anxiety, which I've talked about in several episodes here at Self Work. I don't like the spotlight being on me, and it's kind of ironic for someone who's been putting herself out there on social media for six and a half years. Even my son, who of course knew I'd begun blogging, said, Mom, you're so introverted. I can't believe you're doing this. So I'm one of those people who has social anxiety, and I am more introverted than extroverted, but I do like to go and do And I like what I'm doing now on this podcast, so maybe I'm going to get nervous from time to time, but I still do it. So if you found yourself in probably five or six of those criteria, then you might be diagnosable with social anxiety disorder. If when you're in public, you blush, your heart races, you tremble, you sweat, you have an upset stomach or even nausea, you can't get your breath, you're dizzy, you feel like your mind has gone blank, you have muscle tension... Those are the signs of social anxiety. They're also the signs of a panic attack. And panic disorder is different from social anxiety. But you can have panic in social anxiety. A lot of people with panic disorder are not socially anxious. So there are some distinctions there. I have several patients with social anxiety. For example, they don't look at me during the session but gaze out of the window as they talk. So I don't call them on that. I just allow them to do it and gently urge them to look at me as it can happen naturally. I do point it out to them kindly and gently, of course, and they say, yeah, it just makes me too nervous to look at you. 
So what's hard for people with social anxiety? They're really fairly common things. You know, not interacting with unfamiliar people or strangers. It's hard to go to a party or social gathering. It's hard to go to work or school. You have trouble starting conversations. Again, the eye contact can be minimal. Going on a date? Ooh, that's really tough. Entering a room in which people are already seated and so you feel like they all look up at you at the same time if you've ever been to a wedding or a funeral or something when that happens. It's even better when you, the only seat available is right in the middle. Returning items to a store is difficult. Eating in front of others can be difficult. And here's one, using a public restroom. There are people who cannot do that, not for sanitation reasons or something. It makes them socially anxious. So again, with the Mayo Clinic's help, what may cause social anxiety to occur? It's probably a mixture of both genetic and learned kinds of things, developmental kinds of things, experiential kinds of things. But like all forms of anxiety, you're more likely to have social anxiety if your parents or siblings have the condition. Now, again, this may be because you were taught and it was shown to you that being out in public is a scary thing. So that can be learned, right? But also the relationship is strong enough that most researchers believe that there's also a genetic influence. If you've been teased, bullied, rejected, ridiculed, you also may be prone to social anxiety disorder. This is very obvious. Or if you've had trauma or abuse, family conflict, again, you may have handled that by isolating and becoming anxious. With children, children who are more timid or withdrawn when facing new situations may develop social anxiety, but they may not. If suddenly you have a new demand socially or at work, the disorder usually starts as a teenager, but sometimes when you're given a task that you were not prepared for or you don't know if you have the skills for, it can trigger social anxiety. And then if you have an appearance or a condition that draws attention, some kind of disfigurement or stuttering or tremors, it increases your self-consciousness and can trigger, therefore, social anxiety disorder. So I hope that's made it more clear, but then again, what can you do about it? I have six things here that I want to discuss with you. The first one is something that's worked quite successfully for me within the last few years is meditation. Meditation teaches you to note a feeling, but not to emotionally fuel it. And it can really help anyone with anxiety of any kind. If you want to check it out, episode 91 is on healing shame through mindfulness. So that might be interesting for you to listen to. Mindfulness, of course, is not only changing what you do, but how you do it. And so you do everything you do very intentioned in the moment, very much in the present. All of anxiety is about living in the future. You're afraid of what you fear might happen. So meditation and mindfulness brings you into the present. And as I say, it's been very successful for me. I went to a meeting a couple of days ago, in fact, and there was a lot of tension in this meeting, and I might have taken a little bit of medication prior to that because I didn't know just how tense it was going to get, but I didn't. And I did great. <laughs> I was nervous, but that's not social anxiety. Being nervous at a meeting that's going to be tense is normal. The second thing you can do is join something like a Toastmasters group. Toastmasters is a group for people who have a fear of public speaking. And it's kind of interesting. The fear of public speaking has been shown in some studies to rank much higher than actual death. 
people seem to really fear getting up and talking in front of people. But this kind of group works very well for just plain old anxiety. Because guess what? Everyone there is anxious. So you can practice starting conversations and eye contact. But if you don't want to join a group, something I've had people do a lot is go to the grocery store. You may think this is odd, but it's a very safe environment to practice social skills. You walk up to someone who's checking out the broccoli and ask how they prepare it. Or go to the butcher and ask how they fix their skirt steak. Or talk to the person in line in front of you about how they like the new soda they bought. Just chatty stuff, but very difficult for anyone with social anxiety. You practice, 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 and look for opportunities to confront your own anxiety in small ways, but then you can move on to larger ones. The third technique is therapy with a focus on decreasing self-comparison and self-consciousness. I'll have people do things that they'd never do, little things, not life-altering things. Then we work steadily toward increasing the level of discomfort and finding ways to introduce more and more ambiguity. I've talked about this before on self-work. These are things like going out of the house without makeup. This is somebody who really cares a lot about what they look like. To being five minutes late on purpose for something. You have to experience the anxiety of the quote-unquote mistake that you've made and tolerate that anxiety. This is kind of like exposure therapy, which is a fairly old technique. But I like the person with the social anxiety to have a sense of choice in what they're about to try to handle and actively move toward that thing. Especially if they're working toward being the mother of the bride or opening their own business, they'll be highly motivated to find their courage to up the ante slowly but surely. Still working on decreasing self-comparison and self-consciousness, I'll often suggest to someone that the first thing they do when going to an event or function is to find someone who looks more nervous than they do. And believe me, there will be someone. Start noticing how other people show you that they're anxious. There are hair twirlers, the person who pumps their leg under the table nonstop, the nail biters, the person who keeps checking their phone. When you stop thinking you're the only one that's nervous, and I promise you aren't, then you can calm down. The fourth technique is cognitive behavioral therapy, which of course would focus on the irrational beliefs underneath your social anxiety. We talked a few minutes ago about that you may have learned this anxiety. If you saw your mother scared to go out in public, then you learned that the public is scary, so you have to unlearn it and challenge those irrational beliefs. The fifth technique is actually to do trauma work on any bullying or other forms of abuse that you suffered and may still be governing your behavior. I myself have used both hypnosis and EMDR or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy for that. And then the last is something I'm not an MD, so please note that I'm not qualified to go into too much depth here. But of course, there are medications. I personally keep with me what are called beta blockers. They're medications that were designed for high blood pressure, but that block the brain receptors for adrenaline. They've worked great for me in high-stress situations, although I'm taking far fewer than I ever have. Basically, you can be very nervous and actually be pretty hyped up and panicked, but you don't respond to that physically, so you don't start panicking about the panic. Of course, there are benzodiazepines that I've already mentioned. They're not great to take long-term due to being highly addictive. And there's some SSRIs or synthetic serotonin reuptake inhibitors that are antidepressants but also have strong anti-anxiety effects. So talk to your doc about what might be right for you. I want to end 
by telling you something about my pretend grandmother. She and I both pretended we were biologically related. She lived to be 104, and she used to say to me, if you stop going, you'll stop being asked. She's a role model for me, and I hope that I'm going to be like her. I'm sure I'm going to try to be like her. But her last two or three or four decades were not so lonely as they might have been because she knew she was loved, and she got asked a lot to go. You want to fight against loneliness because it can be much more devastating than anxiety. So please, if you struggle with social anxiety, you're more than worth working with it and coming out of it, learning new skills. The listener email for today is short and sweet. She says, I've been dealing with anxiety and depression before I lost my husband. Then it became worse after I lost him, and two years later, I was diagnosed with cancer. Now I'm in need of self-work, and I do know that I'm not getting any better. Maybe you can help me? Any suggestions? I just started listening to your podcast, and I love it. So I said, hello. I'm so glad the podcast is helping in some way. Wow, you've had a ton of loss. Not to sound like a therapist that believes every answer depends on going to therapy, but if you're not in therapy with someone who can help guide you through that grief, then I would highly recommend that you start. I'm amazed sometimes when someone tells me that they've been in therapy and that grief wasn't even mentioned. But I guess not all therapists are particularly comfortable with pain that lasts a long time and has to be very gently worked through. Sometimes family or friends can't be enough because you're afraid you're burdening them or even they can seem uncomfortable with continuing to talk about grief. You could also go to a grief recovery group, which many therapists and churches run. You'd have to search for them online, but they're there. And obviously, if you're having flashbacks or nightmares about these losses, then going to a therapist who is certified in eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy, or EMDR, can be extremely helpful. But please realize you're worth living a good life, even with these losses and challenges. You faced cancer. You faced the death of your husband. Now it's time to take care of you. I want to thank you so much for joining me on Self Work today. I get such a kick out of hearing from all of you via email. I get to know you. I get to know why you listen, what you like, what you don't like what you want to know about, what would be a great topic in your estimation. So please write me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com or go over to my website, DrMargaretRutherford.com, that's creative, <laughs> and subscribe there. You'll receive my weekly blog post as well as this weekly podcast. So it's a great way to kind of keep up with things without having to check the podcast. Also, if you'd leave me ratings and reviews wherever you listen, I'd so appreciate that. It's the best way that I have of people knowing how you're enjoying self-work, what you enjoy about it. There are thousands of you now who listen. I think perhaps by the time this is aired, self-work will have reached over half a million downloads. And I'm so blown away by that. If you leave ratings or reviews, I'd be very grateful. There are a couple of other ways of being involved in my world. Over on Instagram, I'm doing a fun little thing called What I've Learned as a Therapist, and I'm planning on writing 100 things in 100 days. So as I record this, I'm at 51. By the time this is done, I'll probably be around 60. 
if I make it. So we shall see. And then I also have a closed Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. That's facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. And I'd love to have you there. It's a closed group, so only members can see the comments. And I've got some great members from all over the world who ask questions, give comments, provide motivation for each other and support for each other. It's really a great group. And then I come and go and provide a journal prompt every week. So it's very supportive, and I'd love to have you be a part. So again, thank you so much for listening. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.